Welcome to Launchpad, a Tech Blast podcast which reveals what is needed to scale a successful technology startup. In each episode, industry players such as entrepreneurs and investors will discuss one aspect of growing a technology company and offer practical advice for scaling your business. In this episode, we're joined by Simon Benson, creator of PlayStation VR and director of Immersive Technology at Infor Group, operator of Innovation Hub Host. Host has already cemented the Unity Center of Excellence at Media City in Salford Keys and is now launching GameTech 365, an immersive campus and community to support the video game industry in the north of England. Today, Simon and I will look at the evolution of this multi-billion pound industry, which today far outstrips the film, TV and music industries combined, profile his own career, including the origins and execution of PlayStation VR, discuss how he has designed GameTech 365 to harness the abundance of game talent in the north, and offer tips to aspiring video game entrepreneurs. Simon, how are you doing today? Good, thank you. Yes, good to be here. The big exciting guest for for myself as well as the listeners today, as a a user of PlayStation VR and a bit of a, a fan fanboy of the PlayStation. I'm really looking forward to picking your brains today. Um, best console in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I have got an Xbox as well. I have. I should well, say. second best. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Let's look at the game sector as a whole, then. So. I started out, I hadn't, well, still got an Atari 2600 set up, actually. <laughs> but that was my my first computer, which was passed down to me by my dad. I had a Commodore 64. But the games industry today is very different from, from the 80s and the 90s, isn't it? Do you want to just give yeah. us a little bit of an overview on how, on how it's evolved? Sure. Well, for a start, it's now an industry. So uh, I think you know, back then it was uh, it was pretty much a hobby in a lot of ways. You, know, you hear a lot of founder stories of people that you know used to make things themselves in, in the bedroom, and that's what ended up being the the content that that we all you know have maybe fond memories of from those days uh, and again lots of people i uh, know from the early part of that industry said it was a very difficult conversation you know with their parents when they were like this is my career i'm going to make video games and they're kind of like well that's not a career that's not a job you know that's just a hobby and they're like well i'm i'm going to go for it um so it's radically changed since them days and um I mean, on on all fronts in in that regard, and you know, we almost still forget that the game industry is still a very young industry in a lot of ways. But it's been on an amazing journey from that, you know, thinking that sort of like twenty odd years ago, there wasn't an industry, and now there's this massive, massive industry of the scale you mentioned. You know, bigger than most of the media industries added together, uh, is phenomenal. And again, it, it's been on such a journey with that. It used to be the case that you could make a game on your own, and then it went through a spell where you couldn't make a game unless you were as a team of about 150. And now we're getting back to the point where you can probably make a game on your own again. <laughs> it's a really interesting journey, but it's, it's you know, yeah, it's, it's been a fascinating thing to be part of. And uh, and again, you just find people in this industry just tend to be driven by a lot of passion. You know, people tend to come into this through their own passions because they're typically a video games fan, you know, a creative, whatever it is. And that passion is an amazing driving force, and, and it's a pleasure to be part of any any uh, job I've ever worked in a studio or whatever. To be surrounded by that on a daily basis is just the best fuel ever, and you know it's really motivating and really communal. So it's it's always been fantastic there. I mean, we started out with sort of bedroom coders in the in the eighties, mail order um, catalogs where people would order games from. You'd pick up a cassette in maybe WH Smith or the local news agent. But then when we got into the consoles in the nineties there was a massive capital outlay that was needed for cartridges, for example. And I remember talking to some prominent people from you know, the PlayStation era as well, and who'd grown up with the 16-bit consoles. And they said the goal was sometimes just to sell enough games to stay in business to then make your next game. And yeah. 
as as you got into the 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 CD based systems and CD ROM based systems, your PlayStations, etc. The the development teams grew, didn't they? And mm. when you say it shrinks back, it shrunk back down again. Now, how? Why is that? That's mainly really been because of efficiencies. You know, um, for example, back in the day, you made your own game engine. You know, and your game engine would be very tailored towards your type of game. It would be, you know, something if it was a side-scrolling shooter, it would be a, an amazing side-scrolling shooter engine. It was very good at that one thing. And that helped a lot of companies to differentiate with their tech. And that's why some companies who made the sequel to their thing and then the sequel again, they just got better and better and better because their engine was 100% tailored to their creative vision of their particular product. Um but then it got to the point, you know, early in my career, I remember the decision points where we started introducing what was then referred to as middleware. The idea that you could let someone else's code be part of your thing, you know, was very unusual, uh, particularly for, you know, AAA studios and things like the idea that you relinquish control over your relationship with the hardware to a certain degree and allow someone to mediate that for you that could be putting things where it's averaged out and not the most optimal, you know, was a huge challenge for the industry that, I think, you know, first it was things like Havoc, you know, the physics engine that probably started making an impact and people like, actually, you know what, this is really helping us. And then you, you saw when things went a bit more networked, you know, you sort of PlayStation 2 days and we started really playing around with connected multiplayer gaming. And again, middlewares became very useful for that particular element because it's a lot of specialisms. And before we know it, practically most games being made now use you know, off-the-shelf game engines in its entirety. And those game engines now integrate directly into the art tools. So so really where we're at now with having that ability for, you know, individuals to make games is because of the quality of the tooling um, and also the performance of the computers. Once upon a time, you'd have to be a genius in tech to, to get something to work at a decent frame rate on a computer. Now, the computer's that powerful. If, if you choose a nice visual style that's sympathetic, you might not even have to think about optimization, which is much more, you know, uh, means that people, creatives, for example, can just focus on the creativity and and those factors without having to worry about the tech if they, if they make the right choices in terms of their vision overall. So, yeah, it's, it's become very enabling. I do remember reading about, <clears throat> excuse me, I do remember me reading about someone would make like this amazing loading screen or something mm. and then they'd look at it and they'd say, oh, we've, we've used the polar bytes, we need to... <laughs> When you say you need to optimize, we actually have to completely take this back to, to square one because yeah. we've got nothing left for the graphics, nothing left for the sound effects, etc. And these days, like I said, there's absolutely no limits on that. Mm. But if, you, if you're going to step away from the, the practicalities of coding and development, how has the industry matured in other ways? Because like I say, it's still a young industry, but it's actually growing mm. up. You've got Team 17, you know, has been on the, the Sock Exchange mm. for a little while now. I remember talking to Debbie Bestwick about how they were trying to empower the next generation of um aspiring video game makers to mm. publish their titles as opposed to just being known as a worms developer which is what yeah, yeah. before now how, how has the the sector as a whole kind of matured as a business yeah i think i think definitely we've seen you know going from the extent of um uh, people that made video games being sort of like recognized as that's the studio that make that game or whatever and you know be quite isolated to that to this idea now that the sort of mega studios you know you look at your eas and all the rest of it where there's uh, ability to pull together resources from all over the globe uh, to make something, you know, which would have been unheard of once upon a time. You know, the idea of having a distributed team, people are like, no, you've all got to sit in the same room and, you know, that's the only way it's going to work. But actually it's, it's now, you know, you can see how things can be structured and 
obviously sometimes now we have games that make that take five to ten years to make whereas once upon a time it would have been out of the question for something like that um so the processes the environment the funding everything's evolved around this and as you mentioned before about um you know the actual physical product the cost of goods has radically changed once upon a time back in my day you'd you'd buy a video game and it would come with like all sorts of big chunky manuals and things to read and sometimes you know little artifacts and stuff in there and stuff like maps and stuff like that nowadays it's all you know cut right to the bone almost in, in trying to keep that cost of goods down low so that we can make the cost of the game as accessible as possible so you very rarely see a manual you very rarely see a piece of paper in a in a disc box anymore and we're even seeing fewer and fewer disc boxes it's all going digital you know so there's so so many factors affecting things and this idea now we've got these large publishers we've got developers we've got indie developers and all these different tiers of that but we've got huge infrastructure around that whereby a developer doesn't have to have their own um, quality assurance teams for example you can just find a, a QA service specifically designed for the games industry offshored you can find localization services offshored you can find any form of development and art you know all the pieces are, are there at scale uh, giving people lots of choices about how they go about constructing a game so it's no longer about just finding a load of skilled people put them in a room together you know there's there's a whole process around it now that never existed before and um, you know just it's, there's a lot more maturity roles are getting more defined um the idea that you know you don't have to hire everyone in your own studio that you can actually do co-development and all this it's, it's a very 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 different world and, and all that is is a good sign of maturity of the industry as it's as it's matured into that kind of shape and, and like we said before in the intro bigger than film tv and music combined which is absolutely mind-blowing when you think back to the state we're in in sort of the 90s yeah and i think it's only going to get bigger you know and i think one of the things that's always you know held back its growth is the fact that you know people of my sort of age are sort of like the point at which uh, communities started getting more interested in consuming video games people older than me weren't interested so but obviously year on year that that tide mark of you know interested parties and audience massively grows and now it's un unheard of that you know you, you imagine you know youngsters majority of them are very familiar with video games and you know understand video games very well and aspire to play them and interact with them but it's also driven a completely different dynamic of what we expect from content you know this idea of you know sitting down and watching a two-hour movie for example some people young people in particular would be like well i feel like i need to interact with this you know i want to steer it i don't want to passively consume something for that duration of time because i'm so used to things being that bit more interactive and being able to have my say and be able to customize it in my way when you even look at apps, gamified apps, you know, the way we interact with our sports apps and it's turned counting our steps into an art form almost with it telling us, oh, you've achieved this now, you've done that, you know, framing it in different ways to really feel like we're engaged with this. And, and therefore, audience engagement has radically evolved with this evolution of, of growth of interest in, in things like the video games world. And like I say, which means you can only ever see this future expansion being huge for anyone involved in the world of video games or game tech or, or all that side of things, you know, the demand is just growing and growing. But also the people who are in business and industry, you know, I mentioned Debbie Bestwick, but it could be people in any other kind of business. They grew up with video games now. Mm. So people understand it. It's no longer something that the kids do. 
it's, yeah. it's integrated in, into our society. Let's go back to the start of, of your career then. So when you say at, at my age, how old are you? I'm now 49, 50 this year. So yeah. Congratulations. When's your birthday? In November. So not doing far off. Doing anything All right. I was going to say, you're doing anything nice? <laughs> Hopefully a yeah, family party. So just want to get everyone together. It's always good to get everyone together while, while we can. I think, um, you know, lockdown has taught us enough about the value of that. So that's my only plan is get everyone together and uh, we'll get us all in a room and we'll all just spend time together as a big family. Yeah, I missed my 40th birthday celebration in Barcelona with my uh, with my friends because of COVID. It's, yeah, this is the thing, isn't it? Yeah, so it's a shame, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so if we go back to the start of that early mm. career, you know, you started out not in games, but in, in no. a very different kind of immersive technology, though. Yeah, so, yeah, so on. basically... I was always really interested in computer games and computer games drove a lot of things way, way back when I was young, there was no internet, you know? And um, so I was really interested in video games as a hobby and things like that. But back then it was like to play video games was incredibly difficult. You know, it was, especially when I got into PC gaming. So to get into PC gaming, I had to build my own computer from scratch without the assistance of the internet there's no youtube videos or anything it was like you have to sort of buy magazines and go to the library to figure out how you do it and figure out what parts to buy and then build this computer and then getting computer games to load you had to basically pretty much reprogram your entire computer you had to know how to make your computer boot up in very different ways so it had enough memory to actually run your game or that the mouse would work you know it wasn't trivial you really had to work for it you had to earn your right to game basically back then um, but that really almost dragged me into this sort of technical role, uh, again, driven by my passion for just wanting to play games, basically. It made me work for it, which taught me an awful lot about computers. So that's what got me interested in computers to start with. And then over time, I, I sort of started playing with programming because, again, you had to sometimes type your own games in out of a magazine. You'd buy a magazine and it would have loads of code. You'd type it all in and then... Hopefully, if you got it right, you'd have a new game and your own game library that you could play. But if you got it wrong, then you had no one to help. You had to figure it out. And and all that worked well for me to really show that I actually enjoyed doing some of that stuff. Right. I so, got that into myself. So I'm not a coder by any stretch or mm. technical, but I've got a ZX8, Sinclair ZX81 upstairs and mm. there's a, a magazine from like 1981 or something and literally it lists the code that you type in yeah. if you get one thing wrong the game yeah. doesn't load exactly doing that, that doing that yeah. as like a five-year-old kid <laughs> exactly and, and and you think that's sort of like it's it's such a great puzzle because you you want the end goal you want to play that game and you will jump through hoops to do that and and that was a learning exercise so yes yeah, so then i learned I, I basically went to college and did um computer i, I did shows a b-tech they said i could have done a levels and they really pushed me down that route but i'm like why do i want to do english maths and physics or something like that i'm not interested in those things i'm interested in computers so um so i did btech uh, computer science so i just did computers all the time and loved it um and uh, i think that's where i won this award for at college was my first award um in my collection and uh for achieving well in that because i just loved it so much and then my next step then really to be honest i wasn't really into education so I wanted to then get a job, but you just couldn't get a job in computers unless you had a degree. So reluctantly, uh, I went and did a degree, went did in software engineering at Preston, um, which was great. I enjoyed it, got a lot out of it, learned a lot. Um, and then from there, my first job, I had no idea what, where I could work with computer skills. And again, my parents couldn't advise me because it wasn't their world. You know, computers are a new thing. It's like no one really knew. So uh, I just applied for a few places, and one of them happened to be BAE Systems, Um 
that make all the military aircraft and all this kind of stuff and got an interview there and ended up first job there as a software engineer. But my first job was safety critical software engineer writing the fuel software for Eurofighter Typhoon, which sounds very posh. Um, but it, it wasn't really for me in some regards because, again, with my passion for video games, I was more into that creative, kind of do something quick and see the results. Whereas obviously you can imagine something where it's safety critical you'd have to take your time a little bit here to make sure it's right. Um, so so I, I, I got some good skills there, but then very quickly I moved into another department, which was their flight simulation department. And that was where, you know, I'd found myself. Um, that was brilliant. We basically had, you know, amazing hardware and amazing technology to simulate, you know, what the aircraft had to do while, while Eurofighter time was being designed and we're figuring out its capabilities. We modeled it all in simulation, which was just like the best computer game ever. It had to be as realistic as possible, you know, and I learned so much from that. You know, not only did we do fantastic computer graphics stuff there with really high-end computers, but we got to play with virtual reality, augmented reality, mixed reality, you know, all these things that we think of as new. We had all them back then in that world uh, to help make these proper professional decisions that were really important. Um, but I got to sort of cut my teeth on them and really learn a lot of that technology. And it set me up really well. And obviously, as, as a passionate gamer, the first thing I'm always thinking about is imagine the games you could make on this stuff if people could possibly afford it. And then, you know, before you know it, this kind of stuff becomes possible. So that was sort of my onward journey from there, really. But yeah, I started off as a simulation engineer. And actually also whilst there made a Formula One simulator for a you know leading team, one of the Formula One teams that wanted to simulate stuff and just loved it, loved all that kind of stuff. But yeah. It was about the F1 simulator then. So you can't say the name of the team, can you? But were you any good at driving an F1 car? Um well, typically when you simulate a real F1 car, if you can get it to move without stalling it, you're pretty much, you know, you're pretty much a genius um but it's like yeah the we had two models on there one was the marketing model and one was the real one so when you got people coming around who want to play with it we'd switch on the let's say the gamified easy one but if you put them in the real one then you know most people it it's very very difficult to get the car to actually you know not stall and or if you do get it to not stall you'll literally just wheel spin sideways or something because of the the complexity you would not believe i mean yeah take my hats off to the to the pro drivers there's a lot more to it than you think it's certainly not like the video games <laughs> and, and then we come on to here's my prop hey evolution studios makers Hello. of motorstorm pacific yeah. rift in this case take take us on that journey with uh with yeah, so evolution studios yeah so i was uh in my little world of military simulation having fun and all the rest of it and one day the door was opened and in, in came a game developer studio um we were making the real Eurofighter. They made the Eurofighter Typhoon video game. And it turned out they were just down the road. They were based in Warrington. And I was in Preston. I was like, hey, up. Um, so they wanted to see how we did simulation. We wanted to see how they could possibly cram so much into, you know, one small PC. You know, the PC that they got their entire game to run on, which had all the graphics, the sound, the AI, you name it, all run on one PC. And they managed to make it with just a few people in a room, you know, the, the, the computer that just ran our joystick was more powerful than their entire thing. The computer that ran our sound was more powerful than all their things. And we're like, how, how do they do it? So we had this technology exchange program into, you know, to learn from each other, but obviously 
you know, I was having this massive carrot dangled in front of me thinking, that's their games, guys. This is brilliant. And I was absolutely fascinated in how they could possibly do whatever we did, but, in, you know, get it to run in such a small performance PC. Um, so, yeah, that's when I, I decided to move on um, and moved on from simulation um, and moved into the world of video games. And they just set up Evolution Studios at the time. They'd actually just... Uh, moved on from DID, which it was at the time, that had been sold as a company, and they'd set up a new company, Evolution Studios. So I joined them at the very beginning, which was great. So, you know, I got to see an indie developer studio from the outset, from the very, you know, initial starting point. And, uh, yeah, our first games were World Raid Championship. We had a relationship with PlayStation to do a launch title for PlayStation 2, which was World Raid Championship. And, again, I was in my element because it was a driving simulator, and I'd just been doing that. So that was great. And uh, yeah, got to do all that stuff as a programmer in the video games world. And very quickly, as we grew the studio from a handful of us, year on year, we grew more and more and more. And I think year every year we made a game, obviously annual iterations of World of Championships. So learning how to make a game a year is an art. You know, it's not what I'd wish on anyone, but it's an art. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we grew the studio. And so it was like every year I moved up a notch, went into managing the programming team, then you know, leading and then eventually producer and, you know, running the whole uh, whole team. And, uh, you know, at points when we got beyond the World Championship, we moved into Motorstorm and Motorstorm was a PlayStation 3 launch titles. And, you know, for anyone who's made a platform launch title, you know, it's um, making a new IP and something on a new platform at the same time is, um, it's an, yeah, let's say it's an art, let's say it's an art, but um, it's a, certainly challenging, but it's, it's fun. But um but yeah, so we went and, and made most of them. At the time we were making most of them, we'd grown the team in within five years, we'd grown the team from a handful of us, you know, sub, you know, five people to 180 people. Now that's that's some serious growth. Um, yeah, that's some serious growth whilst you're making all them products. You know what I mean? There's a there's a lot going on there. So that really taught me an awful lot about studios of all different shapes and sizes and the dynamics of them firsthand, you know, because like I say, I had the reins on those projects as the producer and stuff like that so um but yeah love, loved every minute of it even though you know it, it was it was challenging at times but it's like you know my 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 worst day is probably someone's best day so you know <laughs> and then you were acquired by sony itself weren't you and then you you had a, a very significant part on a a particularly special project tell me a little bit about that yeah so basically um sony eventually um acquired evolution studios so i even though I sat at the same desk, was suddenly a PlayStation employee, which was which was great. And um, and then with my background in tech, again back to that simulation point, you know, within PlayStation, there was suddenly a lot more opportunity for, you know, no longer being just an indie de- indie developer studio whose job is just to make this one game or whatever, but we could look across the entire business and and you know PlayStation and Sony itself is a fantastic organization in terms of how dynamic. They are, you know, it's um, if you want to talk to anyone about anything in any division, you can just pick up the phone and uh, talk to them and things get done. And it's a great organization for that. Uh, so I had this sudden opportunity that my world had just opened up. So um, I got involved as a technologist to look at what could be possible, because what we actually did at the time, we made a version of MotorStorm um, Pacific Rift, actually, of all things that was actually stereoscopic. So that's the 3D technology from, you might remember from like 3D cinema, 3D TV days, stuff like that. This was before 3D TVs were launched. So we showed it as a concept. And um, that was with a good friend of mine that I brought over from um, from the simulation world, Ian Bickerstaff. We worked together at 
in simulation and you know brought him over into the games world and you know we, we sort of partnered up on this kind of stuff and did a great job and so we made this uh stereoscopic version showed it to the higher echelons of sony and they were kind of like ah good timing because we're about to launch 3d tv and you know this would be a fantastic content category to support video to support the movies and all the rest of it so because we knew how to do it we were given the role of okay make it so so we worked across all of the PlayStation areas and again, working close with the movie people from Sony uh, movies and all the Sony pictures and all the rest of it to really come up with a launch plan for 3d gaming on PlayStation three. So we put the uh, quality control procedures in place because we know that, you know, again, PlayStation itself is a very consumer facing platform, not like PC world where people can be maybe have a bigger, threshold of understanding of technology if people just want it to be easy on playstation it should be accessible that's the whole point make take advanced tech and make it really accessible so people can just plug it and it just works so it's more important to make sure that the quality bar for 3d was very straightforward on playstation so that was a lot more effort we got that sorted we put a procedure in place for all that we trained the developers how to make the content and within six months we had 10 pieces of content ready to go um to support the launch and you know it was it was great and it was a big success we overall i think we eventually had over 100 stereoscopic games all to a really high degree of quality on playstation it was, it was a real flagship um launch really for for a technology you know it was very very well done so even i do say so myself um so very proud of that um but we also said that really that stereoscopic technology was only a stepping stone just like if you remember the playstation moves the motion controllers you know, the days of that was, was just really a stepping stone for what people really wanted, which was this idea of full immersion gaming. You know, I always say it's like the Star Trek holodeck. That's the ultimate vision, you know, that I'm in my game and it just feels as real as I want it to be. And we always said that virtual reality was a step further along that line towards that Star Trek holodeck. Um, and one day we had to stop talking about it as a concept because actually we kind of made it um, and we had something working and it was amazing and we were really, really amazed by how how good we managed to achieve it to be and this was way before the days of oculus rift and you know dk1s and palmer lucky and all that kind of stuff in fact a very long time ago alfred palmer lucky a job when he was still a student um before yeah, indeed. That, his <laughs> life could have been very different um but um but yeah the um we, so we had this concept of Made, we made a virtual thing again we showed that around sony again using the contacts we built when we did our 3d gaming related stuff we were pretty well connected internally internationally across the, the playstation group and across sony and it was very well received so we started work on that you know as one of the founder members of that we started work on really realizing that um and then you know obviously when the uh oculus was first shown and, and john carmack was involved and it made a big hit at e3 you that catapulted our project forward even further because again that was the ultimate validation that the world really wants this kind of stuff and we were already way way along the line by that point but then all of a sudden you know the acceleration was huge we you know pretty much any resources we ever needed you could just have because it's been validated it's an important thing out there um and um and yeah grew from there really and became an amazing product i mean i think probably overlooked in its history in some regards but for several years playstation vr was the highest selling you know largest install based virtual reality console in the world 
you know, it was phenomenal, you know. To, well, it's uh, that accessibility that you're talking about. People yeah, had PlayStations exactly. that the price point was affordable compared to yep. getting a high-end PC and connecting it up, right? Yeah, and then again, it's it's that PlayStation ethos of making it accessible, you know, making it easy so people could just go out, buy this thing, plug it in, it just worked, and it fit into their ecosystem. Anyone who already had a camera or move controllers, the controller itself, it all just worked, you know, and it was well-considered. Um, you know, it was really difficult to get to that point. Don't get me wrong. You know, the, getting something like that to be so successful at its launch, because you were making something that's never been done before in consumer space. It's a bit like when you think about a VR heads, it's a bit like an item of clothing. You know, it has to fit properly on everyone's heads in the world. And we were really lucky because we, with the project, when we did it, we did it as a very, very international project. So we had teams in Japan, Europe, America, all collaborating really closely together. And the things that we learned from that that made sure that the product was a success was phenomenal. Because what we found is ergonomically, people in those territories have got very, very different physical characteristics on, on average. You know, you tended to find that in the UK, we tend to have larger noses, Roman noses and things like that. So, so that we were always complaining about the fit around our noses and we managed to iron that out. In America, there were more people with larger head circumferences. Um, so must have bigger brains. Um, so big, uh, big headed Americans here, yeah. here first. <laughs> but, uh, but so, you know, we managed to fit for that. And then obviously in Japan, you would often find that in an Asian territory, they, a lot of people don't like pressure on the cheeks as much. Um, so, but these things we would never have discovered if we hadn't have had this, you know, fantastically international development team. And lots of opportunity again to take the headset to shows. When you think about most products are made, um, you sort of make it in six months, you advertise for six months and ship it. Well, PlayStation VR, we're taking it on the road and showing it loads of shows, loads of times uh, over many years. And that gave us a lot of opportunity to really show it to people, get proper feedback. And it was a huge success as a result of that. And again, you know, PlayStation VR 2 out now and very, very impressive piece of hardware. And and like I say, I've got so many fond memories of my time at PlayStation and, and the way PlayStation itself functions. They're an amazing business and they do an amazing job. And I'm still a big PlayStation fanboy, as you can probably tell. So you took all those skills, going to trade shows, building products from scratch, and you took them into Infogroup, which is the operator of Host, which is where you are now. And you've designed GameTech 365. Just tell me mm -hmm. a little bit about what you're trying to do with that. Yeah, so again... I always have this big passion for um, the ecosystem of, of the world of game creation and things like that. And and it's quite apparent that in certain, you know, what in the UK, everyone just thinks it's all in London, or at least this was the view, you know, in the same way that typically, certainly up, up here in the, where I live in the north of England, um, if you are passionate about wanting to go into the games industry, people can't see anything that shows you there's a front door there for you. So most people either assume that it's only in Los Angeles, it's all made in Hollywood, or if they do know something about it, they probably think, well, it's probably in London. But actually, there's such a healthy industry in all over this you know, country, you know, in the north of England in particular, there's huge business, huge video. Game. Like you mentioned Team 17, well, like one of their studios is at Media City in Manchester, you know, and the base up north here, um, you know, Rockstar, you know, all wipeout made in liverpool you know it's there's so much but people just don't see it so i was always really keen to really sort of shine a light on this and say well individually all these different businesses want to be known and want to let people understand it but they all try to do it on their own so let's try and do something where we can collect them together in some way and give them a central voice 
So I was really keen on working at Media City because I think Media City had an objective of obviously being a, a new media epicenter for the UK outside of London. So it had that reputation already, but really from broadcast perspective. But actually, as we know, our audience is evolving. Broadcast, you know, is evolving too. And when you think about a TV show, most of them have got an app now that goes with that you interact with. So everything's turning into this gamified world. So I was really keen on doing something where we can basically build a new epicenter at a, a place that's designed for it, for game tech and for all that future interaction thing to, to redesign that and give it an epicenter that's has got a huge catchment. So we could catch the breadth of, of the North of England and things like, you know, and, and basically have another center outside of London that's equally is, has the reputation and, 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 you know, the understanding of its quality and its output. So that's really where it started from. And the great thing was I met up with Moisap, who's the CEO of Infor Group. And, you know, he had exactly the same vision. He was so into this. I'm like, right, we'll do this together then. Let's get on with it. And and so we set off on that journey and it's been a long journey. And But we've, you know, done some great things now. And it's really having a lot of momentum. You know, we've got, we, we initially start off with Unity Centre of Excellence. The first one um, brought into a, a, an established ecosystem there's only about seven in the world we had one in manchester straight away so you, um, unity just for the for the listeners is one of these game engines that you're talking about which basically powers like 60 percent yeah. of the world's games or something exactly like. a majority of video games in the world are made using the unity game engine you know it's not something you often see on the surface of it but it's un, underneath the surface it's huge and therefore the credibility of starting there was phenomenal you know with such a you know major backbone of the industry being brought to Media City, it was, it was phenomenal. So that was where we started and we built from there. Um, we knew full well that one key part is skills. If you don't have the the right skills and, you know, people trained in how to make video games and how to use game engines and all the rest of it as a foundation, then no business can really grow. And we already see that there's a huge skill shortage internationally. There's a skill shortage when it comes to game and engine and game tech skills. Um, so we were keen to address that. So, you know, we, we put a lot of effort into building out things like boot camps and training programs, things like that to, to get people industry ready, not just give them, you know, some academic knowledge, but actually fundamentally employable was the key thing so that businesses can now grow, which now means that there's an epicenter there of saying, bring your business here. You've got a great opportunity to grow your business because it's, you're surrounded by a pool of talent um, that you, you, that is going to be essential to your growth journey. So that was kind of, that. Which, which is the kind of thing you had to go out and find for yourself through experience, but actually you're delivering this into people coming out of universities or, or wherever, local communities yeah. as well, to say, here's the support, let's work together to make a success. And fundamentally, it's about us bringing together industry. It's getting the industry partners together. That, because again, as you know yourself, with tech, it evolves that quickly that anyone who's got some knowledge a few years later, it can be out of date. And this is often the risk with you know, some uh, university programs, for example, because it takes a long time to author a university degree program. And then it takes three years to get any output from it. But yet technology can change a lot in that time frame. So we work really closely with developers, businesses, anyone using this stuff to keep a finger on the pulse of, you know, what it is that they're actively using at the moment in terms of tool sets, processes, everything. You know, what is it you're using? What do you need from from the world in terms of your recruits and when we make programs that give them that and work hand in hand with them and you know that's the that's the important part 
it's keeping current and that's why you know you can't do it in isolation it's you know it's, it's a case of convening a community um, to make that happen and that's what got us to this game tech 365 vision you know game tech 365 really is a community the whole point and we did a lot of research into the indie developers in particular and anyone who's building companies that utilize game tech as their primary point of value within their business and there's a, a very good startup rate. There's something like over 500 typically started up in a year, but they don't have that great a survival rate long-term or a scaling rate. You know, a lot of them stay to about four people, you know, a very large, like you're talking like 90% stay to about four people in scale. So clearly struggling to scale. Quite a lot of them don't make it, you know, after a year or so, but they have a good run and then they don't make it. So we looked at all these problems and like, right, okay, what do we do about this? How has this been mitigated in the past? What have the successful ones done that's different? The successful ones typically say, the reason I was successful is because that guy over there in the corner told me this, this guy that runs that company over there helped me out with this bit, you know, basically peer-to-peer support because again, going back to that point about the video game industry not necessarily being as recognized because of its age, politicians don't necessarily didn't necessarily recognize it as much because they they weren't your typical audience for video games they were older people all the rest of it hadn't engaged with games so the government didn't really put a lot of support into video games and creative industries in general it's starting now now we're starting to see that now it's great you can talk to some politicians now who grew up as gamers and they're all over it they get it but that's very rare that's like the last few years but up until then, most businesses that started in this space had no support apart from their friends in the industry, you know, peer to peer. So what Game Tech 365 is all about is trying to make something out of that, put a process around that so that we can make that peer to peer support be a thing that is easily managed and handled so that people that do want to give back, that can be done in a way where it's more targeted, you know, say, well, actually, you know, there's these people over here and we can do the introductions and connect people. Um, where there's a need and where there's a supply we can put that together and and build something more than that and actually reinforce that natural thing that has been the surviving factor and again a lot of other businesses tended to fail for a few key reasons obviously many game studios are creatively led from the outset someone's got this amazing idea that they want to see through that's what gets them together the passion drives them they form a company they get on with doing it but sometimes because they're more of a creative person, they're not necessarily as much of an entrepreneur or a business person. And often it's the case that a few mistakes could be made in the structure of where they do the business. Maybe they give away too many shares early or maybe they sign a bad contract that's tied up in knots for a few years or steals all their IP off them or whatever it might be. So that tends to be the thing that makes them not grow or makes them not scale. So we just want to put that in place and say, right, we'll, we'll put together something, this community where everyone can help each other out. But equally, some of the key things can be targeted, some key support, get everyone up to speed on how their business should be structured, get everyone up to speed on what is and isn't a good contract. Give them a forum where they can ask and you know, experts can guide them and facilitate their journey through their first formative years to help them get over all them humps that many people have identified and they're actually quite well-known things, but, you know, not easily spread around. So so that's really what Game Tech 365 is all, around, all about, you know, getting that community together um, so that our industry itself can really flourish off the things that, you know, it's great at, you know. 
So I'm a, an aspiring video game entrepreneur. Give me some rocket fuel. Give me a few quick points in 30, 30 seconds, mm-hmm. yeah. which, which I can take away today and apply. Yeah, so I'd say the most important thing I always say to everyone is know yourself first, because we all enter this journey of making a video game or whatever, or forming a studio based on some passion that drives us. You know, embrace your passion, but also understand your limitations. Uh, you, you often find that, you know, the things that you're good at, if you spend time on them, you'll get even better at them very, very quickly. But the things you're not so good at, say you're not a very good salesperson or something, and you, that's part of your job now because you're running the company, you've got to go out there and sell yourself. If you're not very good at it, you can, it'll take you 10 times as long to move that needle one notch. And if you put that same effort into your creative side, you'd probably in the same time, you'd move that needle 10 notches. So play to your strengths, ignore your weaknesses, supplement your weaknesses with others that have got strength in those areas and that'll everyone can live the best lives and you get a supercharged studio you know that's that's the important thing it's knowing yourself and also thinking about how your journey might evolve as you scale the company you know when you start off and there's just you and your mates doing this thing and you're all in your own little roles and you're all very happy but your aspiration might be i want to run a mega corporation it's like think what a mega corporation is really like you're going to spend most of your time in board meetings talking about share options you know is that what got you into the industry would you be happy you know if not get someone else to do that bit and stick to your guns and do what you do best and you can still end up doing very well for yourself but you'll have a happier and better journey if you if you're true to yourself so that's that's my one thing i think so let's finish on a, a bit of a personal chat. Tell me something about yourself that would surprise me. Yeah. So I guess um, I guess yeah, I would I'd go for my brother. My brother's an interesting one. So me and my brother, again, we went on a very similar journey when we were young. So we were actually born in the same year, but we're not twins. But we both went to the same college, the same university, did the same courses, followed this this kind of life. Now, when we were kids, because... Who's, who's we were, winning, Simon? Who, who's winning? That's what we need to know. <laughs> Well, I couldn't possibly say. No, we're obviously it's uh, we're both happy in life, and that we're all winners then. So, um, but yeah, I mean, we went slightly different routes. So I went in the game route. He's now a VP of um, big tech, does all the um, sort of like big data stuff and AI and all that kind of stuff. So different paths now. Um, so he'll probably rule the world one day because of all that stuff. We all know what's happening there with AI. So, um, but um, but yeah, but when we were young, because like I was born, so he was born in the January, and I was born in November of the same year. So, if you ever seen the film Twins, when they have like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito babies together, that's mm-hmm. kind of what we looked like. We were dressed the same, but like he was clearly a big baby, and I was a tiny little runt baby, basically. And uh, that's my heritage. But and I've done all right since I'm now six foot three, so and the tallest in the family, so I've overtook. Is he? Is he already turned fifty? Has he? Yeah, he's already turned 50 this year, yeah. So he had his 50th at the beginning of the year, yeah. Who's, who's going to have the best part of him, are you? Uh, I'm going to have more people, that because he's moved down to Oxford, you see, where I'm... Ah, oh, boo. <laughs> I wanted to do one of them DNA tests, and it pretty much said, you have never left the north of England ever. So I thought, well, that, that explains everything. That explains even though I've had a big international career, I've always managed to do it without leaving uh, this this area, basically, you know. Good on you, good on you. Well, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, it's a shame we don't have more time to go into things like the fact that you had a Dragon 32, not a, <laughs> not a Commodore 64. Any time, but, um, and also sharing your plans about info groups, you know, Game Tech 365, the community you're looking to build in, in Media City. And yeah, some great tips for aspiring entrepreneurs. It's been an absolute pleasure. No, pleasure too. Thank you very much. If you've got any feedback on today's episode, scribble it down on LinkedIn, X or YouTube, or drop us an email at podcasts at businesscloud.co.uk. 
If you enjoyed the episode and found it useful, please like and subscribe on your preferred podcast platform to be among the first to hear insights from renowned entrepreneurs and investors. Thank you for listening and see you soon. Launchpad is a Tech Blast podcast produced in partnership with pan-European B2B tech PR and communications agency Titan. New episodes are streamed on Tech Blast's YouTube, LinkedIn and Twitter pages from 12pm on the final Friday of every month. Or you can find all episodes on YouTube and all major audio podcast platforms. Subscribe now so you never miss an episode.